everyone, and welcome to the Homicide Homegirls podcast, a weekly true crime podcast examining the true crime cases that fascinate and intrigue us. I'm Arielle. And I'm Amanda. Thanks for joining us. We can't wait to share the details of this wild episode with you. Hey guys, welcome back. Welcome. Uh, So we're on episode 19, and before we even get started, I wanted to take a second and give a quick trigger warning. Um, I know we haven't done that before, but today's episode deals with severe child abuse and violence against a very young child, which is something that we haven't really covered in detail before. Right. Um, I mean, we had Martha Jean Lambert, but she was 12. She was a little bit older. This is a And then we had a little bit of, uh, not not really physical with Bill Butterfield, but but nothing probably. Right. This is, this is very extreme. Gruesome? Not necessarily gruesome. Conograph. Yeah, just so. Th- first of all, this was a recommended case via email. Yes. Um, they wanted to remain anonymous. I think so. So, I, I don't know much about this case. I know from enough. a quick Google search. I, yeah. Once we got the recommendation, I looked it up. Right. And that was about it. I. I. So I kind of know where we're going with this, but. Right. I don't know very much. So if the topics of child abuse or violence against a very young child. Uh, may bother you then you should turn the episode off now that bad yeah so but with that said we're just gonna jump right in during today's episode we'll be discussing the 1995 murder of shane kaufman in oklahoma first oklahoma case yeah so on february 9th 1996 the skeletal remains of eight-year-old shane kaufman were found in an abandoned freezer Located next to a mobile home, which was previously rented by his mother, Bertha Jean Kaufman, in Little Axe, Oklahoma. And that's in Cleveland County, Oklahoma, which includes Oklahoma City. Just for some perspective of, like, where Little Axe is. Okay, we jumped right in there. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we we were, like, 0 to 60, yes. 2.8 seconds. Okay. Um. So, while police were searching the mobile home of... Um, of Shane's mother, a photograph of 35-year-old Donald Gilson was discovered, and it was determined that Gilson was Kaufman's boyfriend. So the mother's boyfriend. Okay. Right. So Shane's autopsy showed two fractures to his skull, his jawbone and the left side of his, and the left side of his skull. So his jawbone was fractured and the left side of his skull. Like, I guess his head, you know? Um... There was a tooth missing from his right jaw, and there were fractures to his collarbone, shoulder blades, numerous ribs, both legs, and several vertebrae in his spine. Oh, wow. So, that's extensive. Was this, um, you'll probably discuss it, but you know I'm going to ask, old and new injuries? Or those were all related to his death? They were old and new injuries. So, the medical examiner determined that the injury to Shane's jawbone was acute because it showed no signs of healing, like it was new. New, new. Right. And the ME estimated that the injury was probably less than a week old at the time of his death. Oh, wow. Right. And the ME ruled that all the fractures were acute and not the result of normal childhood play. I so, like, he didn't just hard fall, fall and hurt yeah. himself. Right. So... Because Shane's remains were already skeletal when authorities discovered them, it was really difficult for them to determine the exact time or cause of his death. Uh-huh. However, authorities believe that he died around August of 1995. <gasps> and they and found, found him in February. February. Oh my God, that's yeah. six months. Mm-hmm. August, September, December, December, January. Yeah, six, six months. Oh my gosh. Um... So they believe he died around August of 1995 due to excessive discipline at the hands of his mother, Bertha Jean Kaufman, and her boyfriend, Donald Lee Gilson. Was Shane an only child? No. Oh. So during later during Gilson's trial, he admitted in court that he killed Shane by beating him with a board on August 17th of 1995. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and that's just the beginning. It gets, it's bad. Like I was... Almost in tears writing this episode. And I, I want to note that the, the the structure of this episode's a little different than than our other like right. we kind of or maybe working backwards or yeah I didn't even do background I kind of just yeah jumped in yeah so 
like I said, Gilson does go to trial. We'll get there. But I wanted to talk about the history of abuse mm-hmm. in this family because it was not just shame. So, according to a 2009 News9.com article, long before Shane's death, Shane and his five siblings, so there were six total, Mm -hmm. were removed from his mother's care by Cleveland County Detective Joanne Sellers. Detective Sellers told News9.com, quote, I just remember all the children were filthy. They were not wearing clothes that were suitable for their size. I remember especially the oldest boy. I don't remember his name, but he was wearing girls' plastic clear plastic shoes that were way too small for him. His feet were kind of pouring out over it, end quote. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. So, according to a 1996 Los Angeles Times article, Sheriff's Captain Lee Ivey said the children were placed in a foster home for about a month in 1994 after Kaufman made allegations that one of her daughters was being sexually molested by a former boyfriend. Former? Yeah, so not Gilson. So, like, it was still occurring by a former boyfriend or had already happened by a former boyfriend she was no longer with? I don't know. Like, how does he, if he was a former boyfriend, how does he still have, have access to her? Right. Maybe they broke up and that's when she found out. Maybe. So, but a Cleveland County judge later ordered that the children be returned to their mother, Bertha Jean Kaufman, after she took steps re- recommended by the social workers to get her home and her life in better order. And then, a little over a year later, Shane's body was found. That kind of makes me wonder if things would have turned out differently had the children not been given back mm-hmm. to their mother. I mean, I think I've said this on an episode before, but I am a CPA, and years ago, one of my assignments was auditing foster care. Uh-huh. And from what I witnessed, I can tell you this, it's very hard to terminate someone's parental rights. Right. Um... As long as the parent is completing the steps required in their care plan, nine times out of ten, they will get their kids back. Good. I mean, I I mean, you know, if they can, like, you know, show that they really want to change. Right. Because foster care isn't meant to be permanent. Like, the number one goal when possible is always reunification. Uh Uh-huh. Because, I mean, you want to keep kids with their parents unless, you know, they're just, like... The worst of the worst. Yeah. There or are at least with somebody re- related to them. Right. And there are situations where a parent's parental rights will be terminated immediately, depending on the severity of, like, why your kids get removed. Mm-hmm. But like I said, nine times out of ten, if you're going to your meetings or doing, say, one of your things is to go to AA meetings. If you're attending all your meetings, if you're making your site visits with, you know, with the officer. The caseworker. Yeah, yeah. the caseworker. And if you're doing their supervised visits with kids and you're going in the right direction, you're going to get your kids back. Yeah. And, I mean, like I said, this judge gave her her kids back because she did everything that they recommended. So. Yeah, I had a relative who got her kids taken away and. Oh, but that was a different kind yeah, of situation. But, yeah, but they were, they, they were working towards getting their kids back. They were going to the meetings and then they. Oh, they terminated I mean, them. Um, they terminated their rights. Uh, I think the, the children are being adopted. Because they didn't keep up with what they were supposed to. Well, that's awesome for the kids. Yeah. That they're going to be adopted. Yeah, their parents are crap anyway, so they don't deserve to have kids. True. Just my personal opinion. Anyway, I mean, and as frustrating and infuriating as it is, like, that it's that hard to terminate someone's parental rights, I mean, that's kind of just the way it is. I mean, you know, sometimes, I mean, I can understand wanting to give people a second chance, but sometimes people don't deserve a second chance. Yeah, and the thing with this is the the that my relative, she got her youngest two taken away, but she's got like other three or four that mm-hmm. had already been taken away. Right. So it's like, I mean, you're not learning. Right. You're just right. being reckless. And like a lot of times, people get not only second chances, but like third, fourth, and fifth chances mm-hmm. too. So like, when is enough enough? You know, and that parent, and when are that parent's parental rights terminated? Like, I don't. I mean, I don't know the answer to that. Right. But, but like I said, she... I think it just comes down to, like, if they can get, have an, a better life elsewhere, mm-hmm. and, like, their biological parents are just not cutting it, mm-hmm. then it, they should get the opportunity, I think, in my in my opinion. Just because I've seen it firsthand, mm-hmm. um, they should get adopted. Right. But, like I said, Bertha Jean Kaufman did do everything 
that was in her case plan to get the kids back. So she did. But she was obviously not completely reformed. I guess not, yeah. But there was there was probably no way to know that. Right. Yeah, there's Once no way to know. She, right. There was no way to know. And I'll get more into like how she met Gilson and that whole timeline of everything. Um, but yeah, there was no way to know that she was gonna go back to her old ways. Right. Because right. obviously her um, her previous boyfriend was allegedly sexually assaulting one of her kids, mm-hmm. and then now her Gilson was putting his hands on, like, mm-hmm. abusing his, her, at least her, well, all of them. Mm-hmm. Or, right. So it's just like... Right. But the court had no way to know that about right. Gilson. But, so. Right. But even even her taste in men. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they wouldn't have known that either, but right. you're part of the problem, too. Right. So. Um, so, according to a 1996 article for the Los Angeles Times, Reverend Sonny Stewart, who was the pastor of the First Baptist Church where Shane and his siblings attended Sunday school, uh, reportedly called the Department of Human Services four times to complain that the children weren't being properly cared for. Mm-hmm. Each time he called, an investigator checked on the family, but nothing was ever really done. Because I, I guess it, it wasn't bad enough, you know? Yeah, I hate when it slips through the cracks like that. It, so, it happens, though. According to the Reverend, he and his congregation often fed Shane and his siblings in addition to giving them sleeping bags, clean clothes, and toys. Uh, but Reverend Stewart told the Los Angeles Times, quote, Sometimes those kids would be so hungry we'd let them keep eating instead of going to Sunday school. i never seen little kids that could eat so much, oh my end gosh. quote. But Reverend Stewart said that once the children began living with Gilson, they were not allowed to go back to church. Oh, no. So, like, their one, like, safe haven, I guess, space that, like, people actually cared about them and were feeding them. Was just ripped from them. Right. Right. Red flag right there. Right. So, the Los Angeles Times article also included comments from a spokeswoman for the Little Axe School District named Jan Sharp who said the children were good students, but they were enrolled and withdrawn from the district several times in the last few years leading up to Shane's death, saying, quote, The mother had written us a letter at the start of this school year and said she was going to homeschool them. After we checked it out with our attorney, we, f- we found she had every right to do that. It raised a red flag for us, but we can't police homeschool, end quote. Oh, no. It's just like a recipe, like the perfect storm. Mm-hmm. Recipe for disaster. Because a lot of people will do that. If your kids are being abused and you don't want people to find out, you'll pull them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, this made me curious about what type of responsibilities public school systems have for students who are being homeschooled. Because she said, you know, we can't police homeschooling. Yeah. So, I looked it up and according to responsiblehomeschooling.org, quote, Homeschooling is legal in all 50 states, but requirements vary from state to state and are often inadequate to safeguard children's interests, end quote. So, according to this website, there are varying levels of notice uh, and assessment by the state, ranging from no notice to thorough assessment, Mm -hmm. as follows. So, no notice means these states do not require any contact with state or local officials. Like, you can just pull your kids and don't have to tell anybody. They're so, like, in, in a no-notice state, like, do they you can just verify pull. that your kids actually... No, I don't think so. You so, don't have to tell anybody. Is that, like, against the law? Doesn't your kids... Like, truancy? To, like, the truancy it, office like, or something? Is, you would think the truancy office would be, you know... Or, like, do, don't you have to have your kids, like, being educated? Yeah, but you can say you're homeschooling. So then there's notice only, and these states require notice of intent to homeschool only. Uh, There's assessment with exceptions, which means that these states require assessments, but there are like various exceptions to the um, assessment. Moderate assessment, these states have assessments with, uh, but with lax thresholds for intervention, like they still have to do some kind of a test, but it's not Mm -hmm. super strict. And then there are also thorough assessment where those states require assessments combined with other provisions. I will give you three guesses which category Oklahoma falls under. No notice. Yep, no notice. I'm going to have to ask my stepmom because my brother's homeschooling. Mm-hmm. But he does the online thing. So, I mean, I, I wonder if they, the online mm-hmm. company, communicates with the state. I don't know. 
And these are the current homeschool laws as of 2019. So if Oklahoma requires no notice now, I can only imagine Delina. it was the same way right. in 95, 96. Um, that's insane. Mm-hmm. But in case you're wondering, Louisiana is an assessment with exception state. Oh, so there is an assessment. Um, but anyway, that was just kind of a background tangent <laughs> offshoot. I'll have to ask. Um... You're still not? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, that was just kind of outlining the history of abuse of the children. So, now we're going to jump back into the discovery of the body and the mm-hmm. what happened following that. So, on February 11th, 1996, which was, I think, a couple of Four days? days? Three days? Two days. He was found on February 9th. 9th His remains were found on February 9th. So two days later, on February 11th, 1996, detectives with the Cleveland County Sheriff's Office spoke with Donald Gilson at, at his mobile home. Which is not the mobile home that Shane was located at. A separate one? Or yeah, it was a, it was a it different was the same, one. A different one? Okay. Yeah, it was a freezer outside of a mobile home that his mother used to live in. Oh, so they didn't live there at all anymore? Mm-hmm. No. So, but that, but Gilson and the mom lived together in this new place. Yes. Okay. So, police discovered that living in the mobile home with Gilson were Bertha Jean Kaufman and her four children. Seven-year-old Crystal, 10-year-old Tia, 11-year-old Tranny, and 12-year-old Isaac. The four children were immediately removed from the home and taken to Children's Hospital in Oklahoma City to be evaluated and both Gilson and Kaufman were detained for questioning by deputies. Are we missing a child here? We are, and I'll, I'm going to address okay. him. His name is Jeremy, but I will address him <laughs> eventually. Um, so, But that's who was at the home? Those were the ones who were living there, the six of them, the two adults and then the four kids. Okay. Well, and five if you include Shane, but at and that the, point, Shane was already they deceased. Went the, yeah, so. and then he had no children, Gilson? No. Okay. Explain. Not that I know of. Yeah. If he did, they didn't say, but I assume that. Yeah. So, examinations of the children conducted in the emergency room revealed that two of the children, 7-year-old Crystal and 11-year-old Tranny, were relatively healthy with just a few scars mm-hmm. on each of them. However, the other two children, 10-year-old Tia and 12-year-old Isaac, weren't as lucky. Those two children were severely malnourished and emaciated. Mm-hmm. Tia's feet were so swollen that she had difficulty walking and gangrenous tissue on her right foot, mm-hmm. which I guess gangrene, mm-hmm. and a large open ulcer on her right buttocks. Oh, wow. And 12-year-old Isaac was in the worst condition. He was malnourished, emaciated, and needed assistance to walk. Oh, Isaac had several injuries, which were in varying stages of healing and scars throughout his entire body. Oh, my God. That's so heartbreaking. Like, having injuries in various stages of healing is basically, like, a giant red flag uh-huh. that a child is being abused, by the way. So, just keep that in mind in the future. Relative to anything, in oh. general. Oh. Like, the child having varying... Oh, right. Like, like injuries it in various stages. A, a timeline. It, yeah. Um, that, like, consistent abuse. Yeah. Habitual so, abuse. So... Did he? Did they ever reveal like why it was just those two? Like, were there certain like, why was it Crystal and Tranny and not Isaac and Tia? Like, was it like favoritism? Was it luck of the draw? Was it, you know, like, I don't know. They never stated. It was Tia and Isaac. Tia and Isaac that were. Oh, that were the worst. Okay, I had that backwards. But like, was it just? I don't know. Um. I don't know if I go into that, but I don't know. So, but Gilson and Kaufman, both in their interviews, they both denied knowing how Shane died when they were originally interviewed by police. And they told detectives Shane had run away from home in November of 95. And they later found him dead in the weeds near Kaufman's trailer. And they decided that putting Shane in the freezer would be the best thing to do. But, in subsequent interviews, both Gilson and Kaufman recanted this original story and admitted to knowing more about what happened to him. Your own freaking mother. I know. 
Okay, so let's back up a little bit and talk about how Gilson and Kaufman met in the first place. What? This should be interesting. Yeah. If so, you can see my face right now. <laughs> so this is where I talk about the other siblings. So she had six kids in total. Barth, Bertha Jean Kaufman. Six kids. All same dad, different dad? I think they had two dads. Oh. I think. Okay. Anyway. So, Shane and his four siblings that I previously mentioned, and another brother, 13-year-old Jeremy, lived with their mother, Bertha Jean Kaufman, in a mobile home. And as we already discussed, the children were removed from Kaufman's care in the fall of 94, when the Cleveland County Sheriff's Department received complaints that one of the Kaufman children was being sexually abused by Kaufman's then-boyfriend. But as we said, not Gilson. Mm-hmm. The children were removed because during the home visit, the investigating detective noted the conditions of the mobile home were deplorable and unsanitary. Okay. So, the children were removed until Kaufman could improve the conditions of her home. During this time, Kaufman met Donald Gilson when they were both working as janitors at Little Axe Schools. So, Kaufman was telling Gilson of her problem, and he agreed to help her by fixing up her mobile home so that she could get her children back. And, as you already know, the children were then returned to Kaufman. So, soon after this, Kaufman and Gilson began spending much more time together and began a romantic relationship. Uh Uh-huh. And, you know, as such, Gilson was given permission by Kaufman to discipline the children. Which happens, I mean, when right. my mom married my stepdad, he oh, was given keyword permission. married. Yeah. Keyword married. He was given permission to, you know, to discipline us. Uh, one time I made the mistake of telling him, you're not my dad. Yeah, that was not a good... I mean, I've dated somebody before with kids, and I've, like, disciplined them, but not, like, physically. Right. Like, you know, like, verbally There's a correct. line. Yeah, right. like, you're not going to be rude. Like, you're yeah. polite. You know, just yeah. have manners. Right. So, according to court documents, in June 1995, the oldest child, Jeremy, who was 13, ran away. So, the following month, Kaufman and her other five children walked to Gilson's mobile home for a visit and just never went home. Like, leaving whatever possessions that they had at Kaufman's mobile home. What? Yeah, like, I feel like you have five kids, they need a lot of things, and you just leave everything? And so, so Jeremy... he was living, I guess Gilson was living in close enough vicinity, I guess maybe in the same trailer park. So, so Jeremy ran away and they left and like, I guess maybe when he tried to return, like he realized they weren't there. Right. I like, think he was living with a family member. Oh. Okay. Yeah, he was living with a family member. Saying, like, well. But yeah, like your child runs away and you're just going to roll out? Like what if he comes back? That's and you're not there. Anyway. So, Gilson's trailer only had two bedrooms, okay? Mm-hmm. Five kids. Two bedrooms. Seven people. Yes. So, get, it gets better. So, Gilson and Kaufman slept in one room, and the other bedroom contained Gilson's leather working material. Oh, excuse me? So, this meant that all five kids slept on blankets on the floor in the living room. What on earth? Right. So, the children were not permitted to go outside and were required to remain inside the trailer at all times. And as we already discussed, they were taken out of school and Kaufman claimed that she'd be homeschooling them. However, there's no evidence of any homeschooling. Has like no evidence of any homeschooling has ever been found. I don't think she was capable of educating Probably not. And as I said earlier, the children were also not permitted to go to church anymore. So they literally just had to hang out in the living room. Right. So, Gilson and Kaufman both disciplined the children. Punishments included standing at the wall, sometimes for hours at a time, and beatings with a bamboo stick, a belt, boards, wooden rulers, a metal ruler, and a bull whip. What? Yes, a bull whip. Yeah, that's why I did the trigger warning, because, like, they, that's terrible. Those those items, like, a metal ruler? 
a bull whip? Like now, did they ever? I mean, I probably this is probably premature, but like, was he the only one doing it, or was she doing it, or did she just allow it? A little bit of both. Yeah. Yeah, and food was often withheld, particularly from Isaac and Tia, as punishment. And the abuse inflicted upon Shane Kaufman resulted in his death on August 17th, 1995. So terrible. Right. So, they both went to trial. So, but in August of 97, Shane's mother, Bertha Jean Kaufman, entered an Alford plea. B.S. But her sentencing hearing was postponed until the outcome of Gilson's trial. So, in May of 98, Bertha Jean Kaufman was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And the judge said death was too good for her. Wait, so the Alfred plea is just taking a um, deal but not... Um, I have more information okay. on that. Um, in a, like two seconds. Um, so, the ju- yeah, the judge said death was too good for her, which, mm-hmm. same. Agreed. Like, agreed. Uh, in addition, the judge imposed five life sentences against Kaufman for abusing her five other children, ten years for conspiracy to remove a dead body, mm-hmm. and five years for unlawful removal of a dead body. And he also fined her a total of $70,000. And each sentence will run consecutively. Just means at the same time. But honestly, it doesn't matter because right. she got life. Like, without yeah. the possibility of parole. So, she's going to be in prison for the rest of her life. Right. Um, and I believe we've talked about what an Alfred plea was before. I think it was in episode 15 about KK's Corner. But I looked it up anyway. And according to LegalZoom.com... An Alfred plea is, quote, a guilty plea of a defendant who proclaims he is innocent of the crime and admits that the prosecution has enough evidence to prove that he is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. It is entered when an accused, together with his, with his attorney, has made a calculated decision to plead guilty because the evidence against him is so strong that it will likely lead to conviction. Typically, it results in a guilty plea of a lesser crime, i.e. second-degree murder, rather than first. And some states see the Alfred plea invoked frequently, such as Louisiana, Michigan, Missouri, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. However, the United States military, along with Indiana and New Jersey, forbid its use entirely. End quote. That was a mouthful. It was. But it was, it was very it was very Yeah. It was important, and I, important. I mean, I didn't... I kind of, like, I knew... What the Alfred plea was? So, but it, I didn't know that much. Let me dumb it down for myself. Right. Um, I didn't do it, but you got enough against me. Yeah, I'll be convicted. So I'm gonna take a deal anyway. Exactly. All right. Precisely. Good enough. Yeah. Basically, like you're you're saying that you're innocent, but the evidence against me is overwhelming, and if I take this take the chance to go to court, and, basically you can be put to death. Right. Like, cause you know, because a lot of times the death penalty will still be on the table, so. If I gamble and go to a jury trial... That's all it's about, gambling. Yep. So, I also have a little bit more information about where the Alfred plea originated. Mm-hmm. That I got from LegalZoom.com. Again, this is a mouthful, but I thought it was really interesting. Mm-hmm. And, I don't know, if you don't I like, like, the background. If, I like... Yeah, the background if, you, if you're not interested, feel free to skip 30 seconds ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but, um... So... Legal Zoom said, quote, the Alfred plea originated from a first degree murder case in North Carolina in 1963, which was appealed to the Supreme Court in North Carolina v. Alfred 400 U.S. 25 in 1970. Evidence included testimony that Henry Alfred took his gun, proclaimed that he was going to kill the victim, and went to the victim's home where they argued. Mr. Alfred left the home, and soon thereafter, the victim was shot when answering a knock at the door. If convicted of the crime, Alfred would have suffered North Carolina's then-default sentence of capital punishment. Despite the evidence against him, Mr. Alfred insisted he was innocent and pled guilty to second-degree murder. He was sentenced to 30 years in prison and appealed his case to federal court, where he argued that he was coerced into the guilty plea to avoid death and requested a new trial. Oh. So, the Fourth Circuit Court ruled that the plea was involuntary because it was motivated by fear of death. Therefore, the trial court should have rejected his plea. On appeal, the Supreme Court of the United States held that there was no constitutional barriers to accepting a guilty plea, despite protests of innocence, so long as the defendant is completely represented by counsel 
The plea is intelligently chosen and the record before the judge contains strong evidence of actual guilt. Today, when Alfred pleas are accepted, trial judges have discretion as to whether to accept the plea, end quote. So I thought that was just interesting. That was. Like, how unfortunate. So it's named after him. So, like, okay, like, if he really didn't do it. That's why you just don't say things like that. Right. You don't (laughs) threaten people openly. Yeah. But I thought that was pretty. That is pretty neat. So during her, back to our story now. Now we went off on a little tangent. But I feel like it was relevant. I like that. I mean, the background info. Yeah. So, during her plea, Bertha Jean Kaufman said that she was guilty of allowing Gilson to abuse her son to the point of his death. Like I said, you were complicit. Principal, accessory, whatever. You did it. Right. You didn't stop it. Right. So, Donald Gilson's trial for the child abuse and murder of Shane Kaufman began in April of 98. Um, There were several slightly different stories of what happened. That night that Shane was murdered or uh-huh. died, however you want to say it. I'm going to say murdered. I'm going to say murdered. So I'm going to go over them one at a time. The first account is that of 11-year-old Tranny. So these are just different points of view. Yes. According to the different witnesses. people. I think it's four different ones. Um, Tranny, Isaac, Gilson, and then Kaufman. Okay. So so not all the siblings? No. Just two just of two them. Of them. So at trial, Tranny testified that he last saw his brother Shane sitting in a bathtub. Wait, is Tranny a boy or a girl? It's a boy. Okay. Um, He last saw his brother um, sitting in the bathtub of Gilson's mobile home. And he said Shane got into trouble for going to the bathroom on the living room carpet. Um, He was eight, but I guess, you know, you can still have accidents at that age. Aside from it being an accident, like... He was probably scared out right. of his mind right. of Gilson and his mom, mm-hmm. and no telling what led up to it. But you know, you better not leave this room, or you, there's. Yeah. I mean, there's so many factors, like mm-hmm. theories that could have happened, and I feel like messing on yourself is probably common among abused children, right? Yeah, and then a lot of times, like kids that age, like if they feel out of control Mm -hmm. they'll use the bathroom on themselves because that's like the one thing that they can control yeah you know if Mm -hmm. that makes sense Mm -hmm. so tranny said that before shane was put into the bathtub gilson beat him with a board several times all over his body oh my god and i don't know if i mentioned this but and i might talk about it again but sometimes the kids are put into the bathtub sometimes for hours at a time like as punishment with water or just yeah oh okay yeah but I mean if you're in there for hours that water's gonna be freezing eventually yeah so but I mean he did just mess on himself too so. right but after a couple hours Shane was let out of the bathtub but he got into trouble again so Trini's, for existing probably <laughs> probably for so breathing true. so Tranny said Gilson and Kaufman then took him took Shane outside of the trailer. Um, and Tranny didn't know what happened to Shane while he was outside, but he said he could hear Shane screaming. And Gilson and Kaufman carried Shane back inside the trailer, and Tranny said Shane's arms were swollen, and he was breathing, quote-unquote, weird, and he had a soft spot on his head. Oh, my. So, due to Gilson's, quote-unquote, house rules, the other children were not permitted to speak to Shane. What? Right. And Gilson then carried Shane back to the bathroom and put him back into the tub. Tranny said he and the other kids heard a few more screams and banging noises coming from the bathroom. And he said both Gilson and Kaufman were with Shane when they heard the screams and the children decided to try and go to sleep. Oh my gosh. So Tranny said they were awakened sometime later by Gilson and his mother and they were all told that Shane had run away. And that Gilson and Kaufman were going to go out to look for him. Oh, my. That's a lot for, you know, I think he was the 11-year-old. 11-year-old? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, next, 12-year-old Isaac testified that Gilson first sent Shane to stand so at the wall. So, it looks like they got the two older kids to right to testify. Mm-hmm. And I think they all might have testified. Like, I think Jeremy did testify, the okay. one who ran away. The 13, the oldest. Yeah, the oldest, but... Um, these were just the ones that, like, outlined what happened, so I picked 
Okay. You know, those testimonies. So, Isaac testified that Gilson first sent Shane to stand at the wall for wetting the bed. Which is similar, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I guess wetting the bed, if it was on the living room floor, if that's where they all slept. Um, yeah. I just thought, I didn't think about that when I was writing this, but. Yeah. So, while he was standing at the wall, Gilson hit or spanked Shane with a board, which lines lines up with mm-hmm. Trinity's um, statement. And Gilson and Kaufman eventually took Shane to the bathroom and put him in the tub as punishment. And according to Isaac, Gilson made all the other children go to the bathroom and tell Shane what a bad boy he was. Oh, my God. So, Isaac continued that both Gilson and Kaufman remained in the bathroom with Shane while the children watched television in the living room where they could hear Shane crying. And Isaac further stated that later that night, Gilson and Kaufman told the children that Shane had run away. So it's pretty, pretty similar. similar. He left out a few things that Trini stated, mm-hmm. but I think for the most part, they attracted. Nothing matches. was nothing was off. Right. So next is Gilson's account of the events that led to Shane's death, and I, I mean, I don't know if I want to believe it, but. Okay, let's hear it. Yeah, so in a statement that he made to police shortly after his arrest and then later admitted during his trial, uh, Gilson stated that on August 17th, 1995, he put Shane in the bathtub of the mobile home as punishment. That tracks Mm the same as the other. But didn't say why. Right. Gilson said he was trying to teach Shane a lesson, so he spanked him and put him in the bathtub where he was to remain until he stopped the, quote, disruptive behavior end quote Ugh. because having an accident on yourself is a disruptive behavior I, th- I don't know I know he said the water in the bathtub was originally warm to help the pain from the spanking oh because he was concerned right all discomfort. of a sudden he was concerned but eventually he changed it to a cold bath but no reasoning mm-hmm. I don't know so, Gilson said Shane was crying as his mother talked to him about his behavior. Uh, Gilson said he then laid down on the couch to watch television with the rest of the kids while he, where he eventually fell asleep. And Kaufman was in and out of the bathroom talking to Shane before she went to the bedroom to lay down. And a while later, Kaufman came into the living room in tears and told Gilson that he needed to come to the bathroom. And all this time, Shane was still in the tub. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Gilson said Kaufman had taken Shane out of the bathtub and laid him on the floor. And Gilson noted that Shane's lips were blue and he was not breathing. Gilson said that he performed CPR for approximately an hour to an hour and a half. But Gilson was unable to revive Shane, so he took the comforter off of his bed, wrapped Shane in it, and placed him back in the bathtub. Like, but I don't know, did he drain the water first or did he just place him... In a tub full of water with a blanket. So, Gilson said he and Kaufman, you know, talked about what do we do. I mean, he said that Kaufman was worried that the Department of Human Services would take her kids away if the authorities found out that Shane had died. Uh, that's a pretty promising guess. Right, like that's... Yeah. So, they left Shane in the bathtub and once the other children had gone to sleep... They removed Shane from the home. Gilson said they carried Shane outside and placed him in the back of the truck. Oh, my God. According to court documents, Gilson said they discussed, quote, just dumping him somewhere or burying him out in the middle of the boonies, end quote. Oh, my God. Right. But they decided neither of those options were right, and quote, even though he wasn't alive, he would still be part of the family being on her property. Thought about putting him in the freezer. It wouldn't hurt him. And then concreting it over and making a flower bed out of it. End quote. Because you care that he's still part of the family after you, after you murdered him? him? Right. So, Gilson and Kaufman took Shane's body to the freezer located next to Kaufman's trailer and put him inside. Gilson said he and Kaufman then told the other children Shane had run away. So, that, I knew that was... I mean, I assumed that it was a, a lie. But he never actually ran away. Right. I wonder if Jeremy actually ever ran away. or he, Maybe that's where they got that idea from. Yeah. 
No, Jeremy's fine. Like, he's alive. No, I mean, he, he literally went to live with another right, family I mean, member. But, yeah, maybe that is where they got the idea yeah. from, you know. Like, people would believe it because, you know, he was, he they ran away, yeah. so. Um, well, at some point, people are going to start questioning the common denominator. I don't know if I said this, because he talks about making it a flower bed. I'm pretty sure there was, like, dirt in the freezer and, like, flour or something. Weird. So, um, last is Kaufman's account of events. So, in her statement to Lily, she claimed that on August 17th, 95, she and Gilson found Shane sexually assaulting his younger brother. That's the first we're hearing of this. Right. That's, yeah. Like, no one else has said that. Okay. Um, the couple made Shane stand at the timeout wall, and then Kaufman paddled him as punishment. So, apparently, Shane refused to stand at the wall, so Kaufman spanked him again. And Shane still wouldn't do as he was told, so she began to scream at him until Shane fainted, according to Kaufman. This is, like, vastly different than the other three stories. You can, do you just faint? Um, I don't know. Like, the fainting goats? Fainting because you were yelling at him? Yeah. No, he was probably physically exhausted from being beaten. Right. And she's the... So, did Gilson say that he wet the bed? No. He didn't say why. He just just said he was punishing uh, him. For, um... Disruptive disruptive behavior. behavior. The the siblings are the ones who said that. Yeah. I feel like they'd probably know best, considering it was probably right next to where they slept. Right. So, Shane was unresponsive. So, Kaufman put a piece of ice on his chest... But Shane still didn't respond, so she picked him up and took him to the bathroom where she placed him in a tub of cool water. According to Kaufman, Shane eventually woke up and wanted to get out of the tub. She then said that he slipped and hit his head on the faucet? She's making this up. Oh, right. And Kaufman stated that she pushed on Shane's shoulders, like, to keep him in the tub. Uh Uh-huh. And as a result, they struggled and the shower doors, like, came off of their railing. Okay. So, Kaufman yelled out, like, for Gilson, like, hey, come help me. Come put these shower doors back on, like, on the track. Uh And so, Gilson left the living room where he'd been watching television with the other children and put the doors back on their track, then left the bathroom again. But when Kaufman and Shane began to struggle again, he went back into the bathroom to see what all the noise was and, like, what was going on and... You know, he saw that the doors had fallen off again. So, that time, he didn't even bother hanging them back up and just set them on the floor. Um, Kaufman said that she remained in the bathroom with Shane while Gilson went back to the living room to continue to watch television with the other kids. And after a while of this, you know, Gilson told Kaufman to leave Shane alone in the bathroom for a while. So, Kaufman left the bathroom to get Shane dry clothes and to make lunch for the other kids. So this was daytime? Yeah, yeah, okay. I guess so. And, but Kaufman saw that Gilson had already made lunch, so she laid down in her bed and eventually fell asleep. And a noise in the bathroom woke her up, and she saw Gilson coming out of the bathroom. When she asked how Shane was, Gilson responded he was fine and that he was blowing bubbles. <laughs> <sighs> After hearing from Gilson that Shane was okay, uh, Kaufman sat down to have a cup of coffee, but then she decided to go check on Shane, and she told police that she found him quiet and not breathing. And she called for Gilson, and they pulled Shane out of the tub and gave him CPR. So she said she waited till the other children were asleep before they took the body to the freezer outside of the, her mobile home, where it was eventually found by police in February of 96. Kaufman also stated that once Shane died, Isaac and Tia began receiving the brunt of the discipline from Gilson. Which, they were the two with, like, the worst injuries. injuries um, or, or signs of abuse, you know, yeah. when they got... They um, were the ones that, like, needed assistance walking right. and stuff. Right. So, I don't know. Her story is kind of just all over the place. It really is. Um... So, the Kaufman children not only testified about the events of the night of Shane's death, but also about the abuse they endured at the hands of both Gilson and their mother. Um, Three of the Kaufman children, Isaac, Tia, and Tranny, testified that beatings from their mother started once they moved into Gilson's trailer. So, 
I'm not sure if they were abused prior to them moving in with Gilson, but I'm I'm willing to bet that they were. They're definitely right malnourished and right uh didn't have right clothes. Or at least neglected. Yeah. Right. So Tia testified that her mother instructed her and her siblings that they would have to ask Gilson's permission to eat. I think the hell not. Right. Tia continued that once while she was taking a bath, her mother noticed an open wound on her bottom and poured (gasps) salt into the bath water. Oh my god. Tia testified that the salt burned. She also testified that Kaufman saw the sore on her foot but never put any medicine on it. That all sounds like child abuse to me. Definitely neglect. Right. Further, the children's appearance and conduct showed they were not fed regular, regularly, even to the point of malnourishment, as we've previously discussed. Mm-hmm. And evidence showed that many of the beatings received by the children from Kaufman were the result of the children breaking one of Gilson's rules. His rules are probably freaking stupid. Oh, I know. According to medical records, the children never received any medical treatment for their injuries. The physical examinations of the children conducted at Children's Hospital on February 16, 1996, when they were removed from their mother's care following the discovery of Shane's body, showed injuries which were not the result of normal childhood play, but were more consistent with repeated blunt force trauma. And Isaac testified that he was, at times, denied food, often as a punishment. Wow. Tranny testified to secretly taking Isaac food when Isaac had been confined to the bathtub for the day. Tranny also testified that Isaac and Tia were not fed regularly and had to specifically ask for food. That's just, that's so sad. Like, that's no way to live. No. Tranny and Tia both testified that Gilson hit Isaac with a boar on the back of his legs and on his head and with a rod from the closet. Wait, Isaac? Oh, no, Gilson hit Isaac. I I interpreted that backwards. During his testimony, Isaac was asked about Gilson's dogs and how he treated them. Isaac told the court that Gilson fed his dogs and took care of them. Basically, that he treated his dogs better than he treated Isaac and his brothers and sisters. That is disgusting. Not that he should treat... Not that he should treat the dogs bad, but not better than the kids. Equal, like, living things. Right. Isaac also testified that Tia was made to stand at the wall and that she was hit with a board. So this board seems pretty prominent in the abuse. Um, Tia's testimony revealed that Gilson whipped her with a board and tied her hands with a rope. Oh, hell no. She said Gilson repeatedly hit her on the sore on her bottom. She said he also put her in the bathroom on the floor or in the bathtub as punishment, sometimes leaving her there for hours. I'm really not understanding this bathroom. I don't... Bathtub punishment. Like, how is that a punishment? I don't... I guess if you're in the cold tub, like, in the cold water for, you know, an extended period of time. I guess. As I already mentioned, Tia told the court that she would have to ask Gilson for permission to eat... And she stated that Gilson would sometimes stomp on her right foot until it bled. Just her right one. That's her foot that had the sore on it. Oh. That they found when they were doing the examination. Which is why it was swollen. Hard and hard for her to walk. Yeah. Um, Tranny confirmed this claim in his testimony, stating that he saw Gilson on more than one occasion stomp on Tia's feet until they bled while wearing his boots. Oh my god. Bertha Jean Kaufman also testified to observing Gilson beat Isaac and Tia with a variety of different, for lack of a better word, weapons? I mean... I would say weapons. And how do you, as a mother, how do you allow someone to do this to I your kids? And they I hadn't... Were they, like, romantically involved? Like... Yeah, they were dating. But, like, they had just met. Like, yeah. I feel like she jumped in with both feet quickly. Like, hey, by the way, you could beat the hell out of my kids. Right. I'm, I don't get it. So, Bertha Jean Kaufman also testified at his trial to disciplining her children by making them stand at the timeout wall and spanking them, only on their bottoms with a cloth belt or a wooden paddle. She also testified that Gilson disciplined her children by spanking them with the wooden paddle, but unlike her, he spanked the children at various places on their bodies. Oh my gosh. Kaufman stated Gilson had a quick 
temper and did not want the children tearing up his trailer. Okay, so maybe don't date someone with, like, umpteen kids. Like, a ton of kids. Yeah. Because, look, it's, it's, it's just a fact. Like, kids are going to tear stuff up. That's just, like, that's just what's going to happen. Like, my kids are pretty well behaved most of the time, but they still tear up my house from time to time. Yeah. Like, that's just a, that's just a fact of life. Like, uh, don't date somebody with kids. I feel like, I mean, they really didn't say, but it's like, I feel like. They could have been the most well-behaved kids. And it wouldn't have mattered. Right. Right. Like you said, for breathing. Mm-hmm. So, in April of 98, Donald Gilson was found guilty on charges of first-degree murder, unlawful removal of a dead body, conspiracy to unlawfully remove a dead body, and injury of a minor child. As punishment for the non-capital offenses, the jury recommended life imprisonment and a fine of $5,000 for two counts of injury to a minor child, 10 years imprisonment and a fine of $5,000 for conspiracy to remove a dead body, and 5 years imprisonment and a fine of $5,000 for unlawful removal of a dead body. And the trial court agreed and sentenced him accordingly. And during the second stage of his trial, the jury found the existence of two aggravating circumstances, so they recommended punishment of death. I was going to say, like, he should have more charges, like neglect, abuse, like... Right. Well, he was sentenced to death, so... Okay. So, at Gilson's sentencing, the judge had this to say, quote, This case, in my view, has stricken at the heart of our community. It does so, of course, because it involves children of a young age who, without question, have been subjected to abuse and neglect of unspeakable proportions, end quote. The judge went on to say, quote, It is very difficult for this court, indeed our community, to even begin to understand how an individual parent or caregiver entrusted with protecting and raising children, the most important responsibility there is, could possibly do the kinds of things or allow the kinds of things to be done to children that the evidence in this case demonstrated was done to the Kaufman children. End quote. Uh, retweet. That's like really powerful the way that mm-hmm. that was said. So, I know you hate this, but dun, Donald Gilson appealed his conviction and death sentence in 2000, citing a laundry list of quote-unquote errors during his trial, including but not limited to that the trial court violated his state constitutional right to a unanimous verdict, the trial court should not have joined the child abuse counts and murder counts in the same trial, that he was denied a fair trial by suggestive interviewing techniques used on the kids, he challenged the sufficiency of the evidence supporting the convictions for both murder and child abuse, just to name a few. Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimately, though, his appeal was denied and his conviction and death sentence were both upheld. So, um, Gilson filed yet another appeal in 2008, alleging ineffective assistance of counsel, and he requested an, a new evidentiary hearing, but his appeal was again denied when the court ruled that his counsel was not ineffective and he failed to set forth sufficient evidence to warrant a new evidentiary hearing. And this appeal actually went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. So, but, you know, overall they, they denied it. So. So, um, so, in April of 2009, Gilson appeared before the Oklahoma Pardon and Parole Board when he laid out his final plea for clemency. You know, this was his last chance. Um, since he was denied by the Supreme Court and witnessing on his behalf and against his execution was Judge Lucas, who said the evidence did not justify the death penalty for Gilson. Although he sentenced Bertha Jean Kaufman to life without parole after examining the same evidence. So Judge Lucas said, quote, it wasn't fair for Mr. Gilson to get a death penalty when she got life without parole. From the evidence I heard, I thought probably she was at least as much responsible, if not more, than he was, end quote. Which... I can't argue with that part. No, I can't. That they should have gotten the same, the same, you know... They should have all gotten death. Right, the same penalty. So, but in the end, Judge Lucas did not recommend clemency for Gilson, but said the evidence was not clear enough to determine who killed the child, and therefore did not justify the death penalty. So, the parole board voted in favor of clemency, 3-2, to which means commuting his sentence to mm-hmm. life. 
However, this had to be approved or denied by then-Governor Brad Henry, and Governor Henry ultimately denied Gilson's request for clemency, and his execution was to proceed as scheduled. Wow. Right, like, he went against what the, what the parole the board said, yeah. uh, recommended. So, on May 14th, 2009, that's my brother's birthday, at 6.14 p.m., Gilson's death sentence was carried out via lethal injection, and he was pronounced dead five minutes later. Gilson's final words were, quote, I'm an innocent man, but I get to go to heaven, and I'll see Shane tonight. It's God's will that this take place, end quote. Well, that's upsetting. Like, I can't even imagine what Shane's family had to have thought upon right. hearing Right, like, how this. dare you right. choose those words right. as your last words. I'm an word. innocent man, but I'll get to see Shane tonight. Are Shane you knows, not, you know, you know, he doesn't want to see you. Right. Plus, what makes you think you're going to heaven? You're not. You're going to go be with Shane? No. Um, yeah, I mean, like, you know, the family, the victim's family members are allowed to attend the execution of the person. So, like, can you imagine sitting there and hearing this uh, dude say He that? did that intentionally, I bet. Like, right. you can you can assume or imagine that that's why he said that. Right. Just to get a rise out of somebody. Like, this is yeah. my last chance. Right. So, Yelson's final meal was a cheeseburger, chili cheese fries, and a chocolate shake from Chili's. That that seems pretty normal to me. Like, at least it wasn't something super extravagant. But uh, I think most states have limits and regulations for, like, what an inmate can request. Okay. For, like, their final meal. Like, for example, in Florida, a prisoner's last meal must be purchased locally and can't cost more than $40. I feel like that's reasonable. Yeah. Forty dollars is a lot for one person. I know it is, but some states will limit a prisoner's final meal to something that can be prepared like on site, okay. or like they'll, like I was reading an article about it, and they'll make it, like you have to choose something that we would normally cook, mm-hmm. you, like, like you normally from like serve, menu, basically, right? Yeah, menu, quote unquote, <laughs> menu, right? And not every last prisoner's meal is made public, which is rude. Yeah, like. I think Tafelski, we didn't know what his last meal was, and we, we have, were like, we, have we right should to know. know. Um, but according to an article on Slate.com, quote, until 2004, the Texas Department of Criminal Justice posted the last meals of executed prisoners on its website, but removed the list after receiving complaints that it was offensive, end Here quote. we go. I don't find it offensive. Quite the opposite, actually. I get annoyed when I can't find what someone's last meal was, but... I mean, to each his own. I guess. But I always want to know. Like, I don't know why. Maybe that's weird of me to want to know that. I mean, it's also weird to be this interested in true crime, but here we are. Facts. (laughs) (laughs) Just thought that was another little interesting tidbit. Also, I want to... This is totally off topic, but yesterday I was on a plane, and um, I was obviously wearing purple and gold because of the LSU game, and we were on a flight to New Orleans, and the two guys behind me were talking about the game and New Orleans and this, that, and the other. And I, one of them mentioned a podcast. Oh, because one guy was a, a public speaker. Mm. And the other guy said, oh, do you do a podcast? And I turned around so quick. And, like, they saw me. And <laughs> I um, do a podcast. Yeah. I was like, I have a podcast? They're like, what, really? So we got to talk. And we're, like, people are, like, floating down the aisles. Like, they're still boarding. And um, I was like, yeah, it's on True Crime. They're like, what? Like, true Crime? I was like, yeah. They're like, oh, so you, like, watch, like... Apparently, there's an HBO show with Matthew McConaughey. Oh, True Detective. Yeah, he's like, yeah, it's called True Crime. I was like, I've never heard of that. It's True Detective. Yeah. So, anyways, I was like, I consume so much True Crime. (laughs) It's a little um, concerning. Did you give them a card? I gave them both cards, (laughs) and one guy even subscribed right in front of me. Yay. So, So yeah, tell your friends. Podcast (laughs) promo. Tell your friends about us. Gilson was the 27th murderer executed in the U.S. in the year 2009, but just the second in Oklahoma that year. So. I'm confused. What? Oh, in the U.S. In the U.S. Uh, and then just the second. Oh, in that the, at state. first I, I, I interpreted it as the 27th in Oklahoma. I was like, dang, no, no. that's a lot. In the U.S. Use your ears. Listen. They're plugged up <laughs> with um, earbuds. Yeah. So, yeah, Gilson was executed. And as far as I know, Bertha Jean Kaufman is still in jail. Well, she should be. I mean, life without parole. I want to so. see her mugshot. Uh, yeah, I'll have to show you. So, y'all, that's the case of the murder of Shane Kaufman. 
Thank you for listening to Homicide Homegirls. If you enjoyed today's episode, head on over to our Facebook page and leave us a review or rate us on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. If you want to be the first to know when an episode is released, make sure you subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Instagram at Homicide Homegirls, Facebook at facebook.com slash Homicide Homegirls Podcast, and Twitter at Homegirls Pod. If you would like to suggest an episode, use the form located on our Facebook page. Once a month, we plan to answer fan-submitted questions in a segment we like to call hashtag AskTheHomegirls. So be sure to use the form on our Facebook page to submit your questions.